0: Welcome to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. I'm your host, Gwen DeSelm, and I'm so glad that you've joined me today. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry, planting, growing, and leading a church. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering resources for everyday pastors and the people they lead, such as a blog, devotionals, coaching, speaking, and more. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. Well, over these weeks, as we've been studying the life of Abraham, we've come across numerous inflection points along the way, events that took Abraham's journey of trust to a whole new level, Well, in today's episode, we're going to look at a story that may very well be the most pivotal moment in Abraham's life. And perhaps it could be for you as well. Here's Dave.
1: So let's open our Bible, shall we, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We're engaged in the study of Abraham, the life of Abraham. But our goal here is not simply to look at his biography, but to take a look at his journey and what we've seen is that this man, over the years, increasingly grew in his trust of God. And that trust was something that we want to learn from and learn to emulate. To get us started this morning, I'd like you to do something with me interactively. I'd like you to consider what is the name, who is one of your best friends? Bring their name to mind. One of your best friends. And as you do that, I have a couple questions for you. What is it? that made you choose that person? What is it that they made that person stand above others in your relational world? I want you you turn to the person next to you and just in one quick second, tell them, this person to me is one of my best friends because, finish the statement, go ahead, tell them, this person is one of my best friends because, why? Why? Some of you guys are making some real points right now by saying, honey, you know you're my best friend. (laughs) Well done, man, well done, yeah, yeah. Whether you did that or not, my guess is you probably shared the reason why. Maybe it was because um, you shared so intimately with one another as friends. Or you've sacrificed so greatly for one another as friends. Perhaps you've established a bond of trust and loyalty as you've weathered deep water together. Good friends, good friends. There are few treasures more valuable in this world than good friends. If you're fortunate to have a good friend, a best friend, here's a little tip. Why don't you give them a call this week? And just simply say, when I was asked to think of a friend, I thought of you. Thanks for for being my friend. See what that might do for them. Now here's the amazing thing. All the factors that define your friendship with that man or woman defined the friendship that Abram had with God Almighty. He is uniquely called, both the book of Isaiah and the book of James, the friend of God. What a title! Of all the tens of thousands of individuals born on this earth, Abram was called friend of God. Friend of God. We're going to be looking at that today. Chapter 15 begins this way. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, what we're going to see here is some dialogue take place in chapter 15. At first blush, this appears to be a very boring chapter. There are no invading armies or villainous kidnappings, no nighttime ambushes or daring rescues, just a quiet conversation between two friends. But when you stop and think about it, what makes it remarkable is that one of those friends was the God of the universe. What we see here is what Bible commentators call an interchange, This is very rare in scripture. The dialogue that we were reading about, the Lord speaks, Abram responds. The Lord speaks, Abram responds. The Lord, Abram, the Lord. This is very rare. Many times in scripture when it is used is either directive as when God spoke to Jeremiah or corrective when he spoke to Job. What we see here though is far deeper, far richer. After this, verse one begins, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and very great reward. Those first two words are important. Don't miss them. These connecting words, whenever you read your Bible, are like speed bumps. What's it there for? After this, after what? It could have been after the events of chapter 14. God says, don't be afraid. Why might Abram have been afraid? Well, for one thing, he'd made an enemy. The big warlord from the north who'd kidnapped his nephew hadn't been killed. Would Abram be subject to the man's vengeance? We don't know. Was he afraid of that? Perhaps was he afraid of the idea of having turned down the resources the king of Sodom offered him to go back to his days of humility and, and in a sense, scarcity as a nomadic shepherd, would be afraid perhaps that famine would once more come? Is that what he'd be afraid of? Perhaps, but most likely, Abram's deepest fears were born of something else, that he'd misunderstood God's promise. It had been 25 years since chapter 12. 25 years since God had appeared to him and said, come to where I will take you, and I will make of you a great nation. 25 years. It had been 10 years since the Lord had promised Abram many offspring Our hero is now 85 years old. His wife is 75. It looks like pretty long odds. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. You wonder if this hope being deferred was beginning to cause Abram to wonder. Did I miss it? Did I misunderstand? The Lord sees his friend struggling here and graciously appears to him. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Verse two, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Notice the term sovereign Lord. It consists of two different Hebrew expressions. Adonai, which means master, and Yahweh, which means Lord. This indicates not only Abram's trust of, but submission to God. By fingernail faith, he's holding on. I think I still trust you. You're in charge, I believe you. But he was struggling at this time. He's look at the human impossibility of a pregnancy at the age they are, and he theorizes something. Look at the text, how it continues. He says, could it be that since I remain childless, the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This is a very common custom back in the Bronze Age. If there was no natural heir, the head steward would, in a sense, become the one who received the inheritance. God's response is quite emphatic. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. If you were reading this in the Hebrew, it'd be got underscored. That man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. In a sense, we would say today, your heir will come from your DNA and nobody else's. Then to drive the point home, the Lord gives his friend a visual aid. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6 is one of the most important verses in all the Old Testament, so you might want to underline it. Abram believed God. And he, that is God, credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. Now, what's interesting here is that God had formally said, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. He could have said here, your offspring will be like the sand on the seashore. But he didn't. He said, your offspring will be like the stars. Why did he use that analogy? To my way of thinking, it's not simply the numbers of the stars, but the power of the one who made the stars. And God is in effect saying to him, if I can make the universe, I can give you a son. Abram's response, he believed. He didn't know how God was going to do this, but he believed that God could and would give him a son. And here the narrator of the text inserts something. Notice again the latter half of verse six. He credited to him as righteousness. He credited it. God this is really key. God declared Abram righteous because of his belief. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. He took God at his word. He believed righteous. It means conform to an ethical or moral standard. It is used of the perfect nature of God himself. God at this sign declares, we will be in right relationship for time and eternity. It speaks of his salvation. It's a powerful moment. Now, when you think about this, this is mind-blowing. I declare you righteous because of your belief in me. Was Abraham perfect? No. In fact, we're gonna see in future weeks, he sins in some pretty spectacular ways. But God, the almighty judge, applies all the rights and privileges of total righteousness to this man because of faith. And that lends itself to the first point that I want you to note. Because of Abraham's faith, God gave the man the gift of relationship with him. Abraham believed God and was credited to him. This verse is used like no other throughout the New Testament, when it comes to how a man or a woman can be put in a relationship with God. Paul writes of it this way in the book of Romans. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God. What, what's he doing here? He's hearkening back to Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Continuing, so that anyone who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. See that word credited there? It means put to a person's account. God deposits in that person's spiritual bank account righteousness. How's that? It's an amazing thing because of one's faith. In his argument to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul just is determined to underscore this. It's not because of good works you do, it's because that you believe and take God at his word. It's because you receive his gift through faith. In the book of Galatians, you've got a group of would-be super mature guys following along these simple believers saying, you know, you've really got to still jump through some hoops. You've got to practice some rituals. You've got to follow the rules. You've got to do this, this, and this. and Then you'll be right with God. And the apostle Paul comes unglued. He says, no, it's by grace through faith. He writes this, does God give you his spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Are you understanding his train of thought here? Some of you grew up in systems that said, follow the rules, practice the rituals, jump through the hoops and hope for the best. The Bible says it's by faith, it's by faith you take God at his word. Righteousness was and is a function of belief, not behavior. Now, don't lose your ball in the weeds here. Somebody's saying this, so all of a sudden if I say, okay, I believe, now I can live as I want to live, right? No. Listen, you are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Some of you look like deer in a headlight right now. You are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What's that mean? Because when you truly come to grips with faith in Christ, when his spirit takes up residence within you, your behavior should start to change from the inside out. You are now changing not in order to get salvation, but because you've been given salvation, are you with me? That you are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So, and this is the whole essence of the book of James, the New Testament. For a person to say, I can say I believe and my behavior does not change a lick. James says, you better check your ticket. Because though you're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone.
0: You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will return with the rest of his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, then be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to support us in this ministry, just go to DaveDeselmMinistries.org and click on the Donate button. Dave Desell Ministries is here to resource everyday pastors as they seek to equip everyday people to become everyday disciples. And one of the ways we do that is through coaching. In the coaching relationship, pastors and leaders have the opportunity to receive individualized practical guidance from Dave on the issues they're facing in life and ministry. These one-on-one sessions offer a safe place to discuss some of the unique challenges you're facing with someone who's a bit further down the road of ministry. DDM also offers coaching groups, bringing the coaching relationship into the small group setting. It's a personal space where conversation can take place, relationships can be formed, and hope and help discovered. If you'd like to learn more about coaching, go to daveduselministries.org or email us at info at dave Now let's return to Dave as he continues the covenant.
1: Abraham's faith is still shaky. Verse seven, God speaks. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to take possession of it. Abraham, boy, right now he's still struggling. Verse eight, sovereign Lord, how do I know I can gain possession of it? And so God determines to show him this visual aid called Cutting a Covenant. Let me share this with you, and then we'll look at some of the texts that follow. Today, we make an agreement with a person through pen and ink, right? I'm gonna sign the contract. I'm gonna get it notarized. We're gonna take it to the bank. It's how you cut a deal with somebody. Back in the Bronze Age, that wasn't done. People couldn't read. They couldn't write. So what would happen? There would be an elaborate ceremony, pretty bloody ceremony, that it would involve animal sacrifice. In fact, let me give you this point. Covenants were always confirmed through the shedding of blood. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half how did Abraham know what to do? He'd done this before. This was how deals were struck. I'm gonna make a covenant with Ken. We're gonna strike a deal. We're gonna separate the animals. We're gonna walk the trail of blood. What does that mean? I would be saying in effect, may I become like one of these animals if I ever break my word to you. And Ken would walk it, the trail of blood, and he would say, May I become like one of these animals if I ever break my covenant with you. On Number 17, watch what happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Look carefully at the text the smoking fire pot represents God. What do you notice that makes it different from other covenants? Only one person walked the path. This was entirely unilateral. God was saying this, I will never break my commitment to your descendants no matter what they do. They will be my covenantal people from now to eternity. And the Israelites to this day are called God's covenant people. This is why God has been so faithful to the Israelite people down through the years. A covenant was made that he was not going to break. It's remarkable, completely one-sided. This was kept for the next thousands of years. When they disobeyed, he disciplined his people, didn't he? But he never abandoned them. He was determined to stay in relationship with them. Then comes the New Testament. And some familiar words. We say these words at communion, but perhaps this makes a bit more sense. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the what? New covenant in my blood, which is poured out to you. Whoa. What makes it new? In Genesis 15, the covenant was made with the Hebrews. Hebrews the Israelites, in Jesus, is given to everybody. There's a new covenant. There's a new shedding of blood whereby relationship can be affected. When did that shedding of blood take place? On Good Friday, on the cross. The shedding of blood, the new covenant. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews comments on it this way. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Again, quoting from Paul in Romans one, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord has done for us. In a covenant, a promise is given, a sacrifice is made and an offer is extended. And this is what Christ offers every one of you in this room. If you were ever curious as to how much God wants to be in relationship with you, all you have to do is look at that. He gave his life. He shed his blood. He said, I love you this much. The important thing is this, you must understand this. The graciously offered invitation must be accepted to be appropriated. God says to Abram, I want to be in relationship with you. Abraham could have said, don't think so. I don't think I have enough evidence yet, I don't think I trust you, but it said instead, Abraham believed God. I still have questions, but I'm taking you up in that offer of relationship. I'm accepting the covenant. And what God says to every one of us in this room is that you have the same chance to extend the offer. Ephesians 2.8, for it's by grace you've been saved. There's the offer. Through what? Faith. You choose. Grace and faith. Invitation response. The new covenant we are offered is by grace. It is only accepted through faith. When that happens, you become a friend of God. You become a friend of God. Something more beyond that, though. You become a child of God. John 1 12, Jesus speaking, but to as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul again in Galatians three. So in Jesus Christ, you're all children of God through faith. Think of it through faith. You are a son of the most high. You are a daughter of the King of Kings. All the rights, all the privileges of that covenantal relationship are yours. All the protection, all the provision is given you. Your total identity is changed. And that's the last thing I want you to see. When you are in covenant with God, your identity is forever changed. Forever. We're gonna see in a few weeks how ultimately Abraham's name is changed to demonstrate this. But when you look to God through faith, now you don't look to please him to gain his love. You look to please God because of his love. Abram did not become perfect at this point in time, but he was forever changed. And for you, when you choose to embrace the new covenant, you won't become perfect, but you have the capacity to be forever changed. Abram believed. Here's my question to you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like more information on how you can begin a relationship with Christ, or you just want to let Pastor Dave know how much this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.